Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. We're also starting a new segment on SCOTUS Talk, and we'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions. You can email us at scotustalk at scotusblog.com or leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906. We may feature your question in a future episode of SCOTUS Talk. We will hear argument next in case 201566. Mr. Boys, I understand you're participating remotely. I am, Your Honor. You may proceed. The Supreme Court's January argument session is in the books, and it was a busy sitting, including oral arguments in a free speech case and a case involving Ted Cruz's 2018 Senate campaign. But that's not really what people have been talking about. Joining me today to rehash uh, the discussions around the Supreme Court is SCOTUS Blog's media editor, Katie Barlow. Katie, thanks for joining me. Amy, every time we sit down and do this, I feel like I'm encouraging you to get rest because it has been a wild and busy news week or weeks at the Supreme Court. But I suppose at this point, we just need to accept the fact that that is uh, a new reality at this point. I think I, I feel like I've been saying that since 2016. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And it's both substance, as you pointed out, the big cases that the Supreme Court heard, but also the mask spat which uh, everyone seems to have an opinion about, lots of interest about it. Of course, the Twitterverse has been talking about it, but you have been one of the few people allowed in the room consistently. Even the advocates can see you know, one day of oral argument and they can see how it plays out over a single day, but you get to see multiple days in a row of how the mask wearing plays out and what's going on at the court. So give us an inside view of what's been going on versus what we've been reading in the press. So I'm going to start at the beginning because, of course, there are no cameras in the court. In the fall, when the justices returned to in-person oral arguments after a little over a full term's worth of remote arguments, only Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who has been a diabetic since childhood, was wearing a mask. And then we came back in early January for the first argument, Um, ironically, an argument about COVID, the challenge to the Biden administration's vaccine or test mandate. There were lots Um, of ironies about that day because, in fact, at least one of the advocates, two of the advocates couldn't show up. Two of the advocates. (laughs) Right. Because they they had tested positive for COVID, yes. So, you know, we'd gotten a... Uh, we'd gotten notification ahead of time that two of the advocates would not be appearing in person, that they would be arguing remotely. And it was the first time that lawyers would be arguing remotely. Uh, a couple of the justices, Justice Kavanaugh, when he had COVID, and I think it was Justice Gorsuch when he wasn't feeling well, had participated in oral arguments remotely. But we'd gotten notification that morning that two lawyers would be arguing remotely, and that Justice Sotomayor would be participating remotely from her chambers. And so when the other eight justices came out, they were all wearing masks except for Justice Gorsuch, who perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, sits next to Justice Sotomayor at oral argument. 
Uh, and so we, we sort of watched this. And it's actually kind of a two, three, two, one court as far as mask wearing has played out. A two, um, three, two, one court. Yeah. They exactly. all have different so, approaches. They all have different approaches. So Justices Kagan and Breyer wear their masks all the time when they are asking questions. And then you have Justice Kavanaugh, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who wear their masks all the time unless they are occasionally taking a sip of water or coffee, whatever it is they're drinking on the bench, or when they're asking questions. And so it's actually kind of interesting because you can sometimes see when they're getting ready to ask questions or trying to ask questions because they will pull their masks down. Um, and then you have Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Samuel Alito who come out wearing masks and do wear the masks, but not consistently. And you know, we haven't been able to figure out any kind of rhyme or reason, method of madness in terms of when they have their masks on, when they don't. Um, Justice Alito in particular will have his masks off sometimes for, you know, stretches of time. And then you've got Justice Gorsuch, who doesn't come out with a mask on, there's no sign of a mask. So with Justice Thomas and Justice Alito coming out and then taking their masks off, Justice Alito keeping his off for extended periods of time sometimes, it's clearly a choice for Justice Gorsuch to take the bench without a mask, it seems. That's right, because nobody's really writing about how Justice Alito takes his mask off frequently. It's all the focus is on Justice Gorsuch. If he came out, Justice Gorsuch came out wearing a mask and then took it off sometimes, I don't think that we'd really be having... Uh, this discussion. So, I mean, the other the other sort of point, and, and we can get back to it, is, you know, Justice Sotomayor is not there sitting next to Justice Gorsuch. You know, on the other side of Justice Sotomayor, not that far away from Justice Gorsuch, is 83-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer, who, you know, all of the justices are fully vaccinated and boosted, but, you know, he's still 83 years old. So anyway, so, you know, we, we, we had sort of mask watch every single time that the justices came out. Um, and then there was a story from NPR's Nina Totenberg. And, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, you and I were both uh, Nina Totenberg interns at various points in our law school careers, um, who had a story on January 18th reporting that there's tension at the court, and the illustration that she used to start the story involved masks. She said that Justice Sotomayor didn't feel safe near people who are unmasked, and she said that the Chief Justice, understanding Justice Sotomayor's concerns in some form, asked the other justices to mask up. And then in response to Nina's story and a couple of others following up on that, the justices issued two statements, which is quite rare for them to respond to press reports. Um, the first came from Justices Sotomayor and Gorsuch as a joint statement, also pretty rare, uh, saying that reporting about Justice Sotomayor asking Justice Gorsuch to mask up surprised us. It is false. While we may sometimes disagree with the law, we are warm colleagues and friends. And they, you know, they do sit next to each other. You see them chatting during oral arguments. They serve uh, together on the board of iCivics, the organization that retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor started. But, you know, as 
many people noted uh, on social media, it didn't really address Nina's story, which said that the Chief Justice, in some form, asked people to mask up. So then the Chief Justice put out a statement. The Public Information Office was, was having a really busy afternoon. They are also, you know, we complain about not having had a break since 2016. The Public Information Office has also not had much of a break since 2016. And he says, I didn't ask Justice Gorsuch or any other justice to wear a mask on the bench. And that led to a, a statement from NPR's public editor saying that Nina's story merits a clarification, not a correction. And then I just saw before we recorded this that Nina responded to that. So there's been all kinds of stuff. Then as Jeff Braven put it on Twitter on Wednesday night, the court found a way to bury the mask story. They issued an order on Wednesday clearing the way for the January 6th committee investigating the attacks on the Capitol to get papers from the National Archives relating to the Trump White House. So I want to ask and I want to get into the decision related to the January 6th Mm -hmm. congressional investigation. But before we leave the mask spat, a final question and a big picture question, because we've seen the justices be responsive to public reporting at least in my opinion, more so recently than in years past. So I want to get your institutional take here, because like we saw with Justice Alito when he was giving his speech uh, at Notre Dame, there was a lot of pushback on Twitter and in the media about not having media access. And then that changed kind of a a quick last minute turn. And it seems like the same thing played out with this mask spat where the justices decided to be responsive to this public reporting multiple times, not just with the joint statement with Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch, but then after there was, you know, Twitter back and forth about how that wasn't really what the reporting was. It was about Chief Justice Roberts and the chief put out a statement. So there seems to be at least more of a conversation happening between the court and the public than perhaps there was in years past. But I'm curious your thoughts on this, on the court's responsiveness to some of the things that we're talking about in the public sphere right now. I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, the the chief, I think that after the Sotomayor and Gorsuch statement, I think that there were, as the statement from the Public Information Office suggested, I think that there were almost certainly questions for the chief in light of the fact that the Gorsuch-Sotomayor statement still left open the possibility that Roberts could have asked. Um, but I think your bigger picture, your bigger picture point is a good one. I do think that the court is concerned. You know, the, the chief justice in particular is concerned about how people perceive the court, and more so these days. I think you can see it, for example, you know, in the criticism of the shadow docket. And so, you know, we've had three oral arguments this term that arose out of the shadow docket, the question about the spiritual advisors in the execution chamber and whether they can touch the inmate who's being executed and pray out loud, the SB8 cases, and the third one just with the vaccine cases, where rather than trying to decide them relatively quickly and with 
without the assistance of oral argument, the court said, okay, we're going to fast track them. And they did. They heard oral argument and then issued, uh, in two of them, we're still waiting on a decision in Ramirez, the spiritual advisor case, that issued a decision relatively quickly. Right. That was, I was going to say that right off the bat, too, that this response to how they're handling the shadow docket also seems to be a part of that conversation or responsiveness to the public dialogue or perhaps um, it's something else entirely and and it has nothing to do with the public dialogue but it seems like it does so the shadow docket has evolved in the past few months in part because of the court's perhaps awareness of of the public conversation about it but one of the cases that didn't get oral argument that they did handle this week and that you just mentioned talking about president trump and his assertion of executive privilege over documents showing his communications and activities leading up to January 6th. We got a decision from the Supreme Court which allows those documents to now go from the archives to the Congressional Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, something I'm sure disappointed President Trump, who feels as Uh, An individual president who put three justices on the court, as he touts, um, should get his way. So what happened with that case? Yeah, so apparently it was a a vote of eight to one. You know, we don't know for sure, but we know that only Justice Clarence Thomas publicly indicated that he would have granted the former president's request. But the court turned Trump down. The D.C. Circuit Um, upheld a ruling by the federal district court uh, rejecting Trump's request to put the disclosure on hold while the litigation played out. And the D.C. Circuit said, we'll give you 14 days to go to the Supreme Court. So Trump came to the Supreme Court. It was very convenient because everybody knew exactly when we were going to get the filing. Um, Trump came to the Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to weigh in. And he said, you know, look, this is really important because if Former presidents, he said, you know, this is critical to the functioning of our democracy. If former presidents can't rely on their communications being privileged, even after they leave office, this is going to be a real problem. And you're going to see this play out when you have changes in administrations. You know, Republicans could do this to Democrats just as easily, was his point. And the court said, oh. You know, and they said, look, was it kind of a a hybrid? You know, this was not, as you said, they didn't order oral argument. Um, They didn't dispose of it with, you know, a a quick one sentence order. They had about a page in which they explained their reasoning. They said, we agree that the question of whether a former president's desire to shield documents from disclosure can trump the current president's decision to disclose the documents is an important question and it's an unprecedented question, but the DC circuit didn't decide that question because the DC circuit in an opinion by judge Patricia Millett said that Trump's claims to have the documents shielded from disclosure would fail even if he were the current president. And so that's, that's enough for us basically. And Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence echoing your your explanation of Trump's arguments, right? I mean, we heard from Justice Kavanaugh the import of executive privilege and being able to assert it as a former 
president, even he said, even though the court didn't reach this question, it has to be the case that a former president can assert it, although that is dicta at this point. That's right. Justice Kavanaugh, who worked as a lawyer and as the staff secretary in the George W. Bush White House, said, you know, I respectfully disagree with the idea that a current president can, you know, supersede the assertion of privilege by the former president. You know, it's not perhaps not an absolute privilege, but, you know, come on, basically. Um, he was one of those advisors who would be potentially protected by that privilege. Exactly. <laughs> this decision... Although we've, we've read all of his emails anyway. Right. So, exactly. you know, <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, that we know of. Um, this decision being likely eight to one raises the question, of course, you know, if you dissent silently, does it count as a dissent? Because Justice Thomas was the only public dissenter. And it also raises one of the criticisms of the shadow docket, which is the court could have easily told us that it was eight to one. They could have easily said this is the vote count and they chose not to for some reason. Yes, yes. And there's been some discussion on social media among some of the reporters who cover the court, you know, suggesting that basically if you don't speak up, we're going to count you as a dissenter. We're going to count you as a supporter. And, you know, maybe we should do that. And yeah, <laughs> unless you say otherwise, uh, to sort of flesh them out. Right. We'll see exactly how responsive they are. <laughs> That's true. I'd like to see how that plays out. All right. So that was not the so only... one, one more interesting thing, actually. One more interesting yep. thing, actually, was that, you know, this happened on, uh, I think it was Wednesday night, and the January 6th committee tweeted that night that it was starting to receive documents. So this was a case uh, unlike, uh, I think, the next case we're going to talk about, in which things started to move very quickly. Where we saw the efficiency of government, perhaps, uh, in a way that we don't always see it. So the next shadow docket case that we have been tracking for a while now is about SB8 out of Texas. And we got another decision related to that case this week uh, about uh, the, the Texas abortion providers after they were allowed a very narrow way to continue their challenge of the highly restrictive Texas abortion law that bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. They asked the Supreme Court to tell the Fifth Circuit to remand the case to the district judge, Judge Robert Pittman in Texas, who I might add is the only judge and all of the judges who have dealt with this case up and down the federal bench who has pressed pause on the law uh, for, I, I believe it was 48 hours before he was overturned by the Fifth Circuit. Uh, but the, the abortion providers wanted the Supreme Court to send it quickly back down to the district judge so that he could begin handling the case once again and sorting through the next steps in the case. And in and, and what appears to be a trend for the past couple of weeks, we got a Thursday afternoon drop uh, a decision from the Supreme Court on it. Better a Thursday afternoon drop than a Thursday evening. You know, Fair the, point. The Wednesday, the Wednesday one came at like 2.30 in the afternoon. It was such a civilized hour. Uh, so, <laughs> Thank you, Supreme Court. <laughs> the, the bar is low. Um, yes, yes. So the providers came back to the Supreme Court asking the justices 
to send the case back to the district court and saying essentially two things. I said, you know, you, Supreme Court, you've already said that our case can go forward against the licensing officials. And so the Fifth Circuit doesn't need to go and consult with the Texas Supreme Court. And then the other thing they said is, you know, this is urgent. SB 8 has been in place since September 1st, which means that Texans have not been able to exercise their constitutional right to end their pregnancies. And the justices turned them down with a one-sentence order. So unlike the order in the Trump documents case, there was no explanation of the reasoning. Um, the, the court's three liberal justices dissented. Uh, Justice Stephen Breyer had the first dissent as you were sort of flipping through the order because he is the senior liberal justice. But all of the fire really came from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who wrote a seven-page dissent, I think it was. It was joined by Breyer and Kagan. And she said, look, the Fifth Circuit is just trying to stall. She noted that one of the Fifth Circuit judges at the oral argument on whether to certify, which is the technical legal term, the question to the Texas Supreme Court had said, well, why can't we just wait until the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, issues its decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the challenge to a Mississippi law that bans almost all abortions after the 13th week of pregnancy, with the implication being that if the Supreme Court in the Mississippi case overrules Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the landmark decisions establishing the constitutional right to an abortion, then all of this is going to become a moot point anyway. And Sotomayor said, you know, basically the majority in the Supreme Court is going along with the Fifth Circuit and extending the time during which SB 8 is in place. And so she concluded, she said, this court may look the other way, but I cannot. And so going back to the mask issue, you know, this dissent came out one day after she'd issued the joint statement with Gorsuch talking about how they are warm friends and colleagues. And, and I have no doubt that they are, but you know, it's, it's only January. And I think there's already probably, as Nina's story suggested, a lot of tension already at the Supreme Court. In that dissent, she also referenced Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in December addressing SB 8 and talking about the need to quickly send the case back down to the district judge for some sort of resolution or pause on the case or, or something because of the chilling effect of the law. And he was joined by the three liberal justices in writing that in December. But as we know, four is not enough. And even with J Chief Justice Roberts on their side, the more liberal justices can't um, take the day without an, a fifth justice. And that's something that we have seen shift in the past year at the Supreme Court with Justice Amy Coney Barrett taking the seat of Justice Ginsburg. And another way that we have seen that play out is in cert grants. And one of the cert grants that I want to ask you about 
is one that has changed with Justice Amy Coney Barrett on the bench versus when it came up to the court when Justice Ginsburg was on the bench. We have, although you only need four justices to grant cert, but the the Coach Kennedy case, the First Amendment case um, about praying on the football field, they granted Coach Kennedy's case. It's likely they'll hear it this term. Can you give us a little bit of history behind his story, his attempts to get the Supreme Court to hear his case and the case itself? Sure. So Joseph Kennedy was an assistant football coach in, at a high school in Washington State, and he's a devout Christian. Uh, his religious beliefs required him to give thanks through prayer at the end of each game. And for him, that meant praying at midfield. And although he initially did that alone, he was joined first by some of his players and then by many of his players. And the school district ordered him to stop praying, it said, so that the school district did not violate the Constitution's Establishment Clause. And, you know, with this court, that's now kind of a, a red flag when, if, when the school district is worrying about the Constitution's Establishment Clause. So he declined to do that. He was placed on administrative leave and then left the school, but he went to court and argued that barring him from praying at midfield violated his First Amendment rights to freely exercise his religion. So he came to the Supreme Court a couple of years ago, I think it was 2018, uh, and was asking the Supreme Court to reinstate him in his job while the litigation in his case was ongoing. And the Supreme Court at that point turned him down. Um, but Justice Alito at that point wrote a statement regarding the denial in which he indicated that his case, Kennedy's case presented important First Amendment questions and could possibly warrant review at a later time. And it was joined by three other justices, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Neil Gorsuch and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So as you said, you know, you need four votes for cert. So conceivably they had four votes at that time. But in the interim, you know, they now also have a potential fifth vote of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So, you know, it was really not necessarily that much of a surprise to me when they granted review on January 14th when the case came back up to the Supreme Court. And as you said, the case will likely be argued in April with a decision by uh, the end of June. And it could be really a major First Amendment religion case. Something we'll keep an eye on. So now we have a few weeks of, quote, downtime, although that's never proven to be true in the last few years with the Supreme Court, with the shadow docket and everything else. Um, but they will not take the bench again for oral arguments for several weeks. But while all of that is happening, COVID is still an issue at the Supreme Court. We had the mask spat this week. We also had Justice Breyer have a false positive. And I want to say, I, I don't mean to make light of the irony of advocates testing positive while arguing against a vaccine mandate, as I myself am recording this podcast at home with COVID. Uh, and so I hope that, um, you know, everyone is is recovering and that COVID stays as far away from the Supreme Court as possible, including the press corps, who's continuing to go in. But this is not going away. Uh, COVID is still at the court, and they are still grappling with how to handle it internally and, and in how that translates to their work 
before the public. That's right. You know, Justice Breyer was out one day because he had a, a false positive, and then later on he had a PCR test and tested negative. So it was an interesting look, actually, at their testing protocols. We got the email that he was not going to be participating in person, that he was going to be joining by phone so late that we were already in the courtroom. And then uh, in the second week of the court's January sitting, David Boys, who was set to argue one of the cases uh, not involving uh, COVID, involving art, um, argued remotely after testing positive for COVID. Uh, you know, he was not, as you said, was not the first to lawyer to argue remotely after testing positive for COVID and is not likely to be the last. By the time the justices returned to the bench in late February, I think that, you know, news accounts are projecting, obviously I am not an epidemiologist, um, but news accounts are sort of projecting that, at least in the Washington, D.C. area, I think, you know, we're hoping that the Omicron variant will have peaked and will be on the sort of downside for COVID. But on the other hand, you know, lawyers come from all over the country to argue with the Supreme Court. So, again, I think that David Boyce will almost certainly not be the, the last lawyer to argue remotely because of a last-minute uh, COVID, COVID positive. So, you know, you know, we'll see. We'll see. And you continue to stay safe, Amy, as you go into the court and cover all of these cases. Thanks for having me on this episode. Thank you for joining us and, and please feel better. <laughs> Thanks. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. 